Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I am very excited to have Bill Casera with me. He worked in law enforcement for 30 years, including time as a sergeant for the Monterey County Sheriff's Department. He has also written five books specializing in old Hollywood biographies. Today, he is here to talk about the life and mysterious death of Ted Healy, and to address the long-running belief by many that Healy was murdered. His book is called Nobody's Stooge, Ted Healy, a biography of the stage and screen star who gave birth to the act that became the Three Stooges. So great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Eric. Thank you for having me on your program. Absolutely. So before we get into Ted Healy, I'm wondering if you could share with us how you became so uh, enamored with these old Hollywood stories. I know. I, I, I was a movie buff uh, my whole life. I, I got that bug from my dad. He was able to identify all those uh, actors in the old movies when we watched them together. So I, it was, it was um, you know, I had a neighborhood cinema I used to walk to and see all the movies. And so uh, I took film appreciation class at San Jose State, where I graduated from. So I've always retained that, uh, that interest. And even though I pursued a career in law enforcement, I always had that entertainment factor. And I would like to learn more. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just not a one set answer. I, in the mid 80s, I started a Sons of the Desert chapter of the Laurel and Hardy Appreciation Society, where I got to rub elbows with uh, some of the uh, Laurel and Hardy people that used to work at Hal Roach. And uh, from there, I branched out. You know, I, I used to invite them to my banquets. So I got pretty comfortable dealing with celebrities. So everyone that I wrote a biography, I, I have a personal uh, connection to. Now, specifically, Ted Healy is one of those times I was watching a movie with my dad. It was San Francisco. 
with Clark Gable, and my dad pointed at a, a, a Ted Healy's dying scene in that earthquake. I said, um, he was a big star. Now, you wouldn't think I would have memorized that, but I never forgot it because when my father said something like that, it was worth holding on to. So years later, watching the Three Stooges, you know, again, my curiosity expanded to who the uh, co-stars were and, and uh, how they came about. And of course, I always heard the name of Ted Healy, but uh, absolutely nothing was out there about him other than uh, some contrived uh, murder, quote-unquote, cover-up. But absolutely I, uh, nothing uh, written of substantially about the man who created the Three Stooges. So out of curiosity, I started poking around in the old uh, newspapers, and the more I read about him, the more intrigued I was how he got to that point where he eventually established uh, a quorum of uh, Moe, Larry, Curley, and, and Shemp in different intervals. So we all know the Three Stooges, but less well-known, as you've said, is the man who was first responsible for the act. Yes. Can you talk about Ted Healy and how he got started as an entertainer? Yes, he, he was born in... Uh, a pathetic situation outside of Houston. His father w ran a uh, house of prostitution. Uh, we can confirm that by the census because most of the people, most of the females living there were listed as prostitutes. And um, Ted Healy's uh, father was a morphine addict. He and his sister were raised in that environment until finally uh, Ted's mom got them out of that. Now we're talking late 1800s, and she brought him to uh, Ohio uh, where she had a sister, and they practically raised him there. And music was established in the home. And I think everyone in the, seems to me, the late 1800s cherished their music sheets and piano and group sing-along. Ted sang and he was an apt student he took singing lessons sang in the choir and um, to answer your question how he started uh, you know they eventually moved to uh, new york and ted became a professional singer now that was something i discovered only because uh, when ted finally emerged as an act in vaudeville he was he was a singer who's a, a black-faced singer at the, the lowest rung of show business you can imagine. And uh, he, became, he became very prevalent, but he was also talented in that he, let's say, borrowed some of bits and pieces that he saw other black-faced actors that were more successful. And his idol, of course, was um, Al Jolson. You know, he eventually did wind up in, in New York, but he started off in the low vaudeville, low vaudeville. And I, in fact, through the newspaper search archives, I was able to establish his first performance on stage as a solo act was in San Jose, California in 1918. So from there, he was part of that circuit 
and mostly on the West Coast, and then expanded. And his big break was about 1922 when he met his future bride, Betty, Betty Braun, and she had her own sister act. They were singers and dancers, big long legs, and they would kick chorus style, chorus legs. And they got married and they said, hey, this is a great act. We'll team up. So Ted was able to uh, get rid of the black shoe polish makeup that he used on stage and stepped up his act to play off his wife, a kind of a dumb Dora act. And uh, Ted was, he incorporated not only his singing, but uh, he was wisecracking and um, it started doing little comedy bits, physical comedy. So they were very successful. They were uh, highly sought after and uh, became, uh, went to the palace and uh, floored everyone. And they played the country over and over. Healy grew up with Mo Howard, right? Yeah, they, they knew each other. And in 1909, they were pals. And they both wound up in a very obscure, um, there was a high dive act. If you remember um, Annette Kellerman, she was famous for her high dive act into a, a tub of water and uh, captured the imagination of America because they made movies with her doing that. So there were a lot of copycat acts that um, replicated that. Uh, Ted and Mo, <laughs> they had to pretend they were diving girls to be part of this act. So there was a, a, a star diver, but uh, Mo and Ted supplemented that with a couple of other girls. You know, they stuffed tissues in their, in their breast with the one-piece breathing suit. So they were able to create that image while they were diving on stage with the, with the lit behind them. It was a, an illusion, but they really were diving into there, and they became very proficient at it. Now, there was an accident that I should mention, because uh, Mo recalled it in his book, his autobiography, that uh, during one of those night's performances, uh, one of the females dove from the high dive into the tub and broke her neck. And, uh, of course, that's a, a showstopper. So uh, it's very traumatic for everyone involved, the audience, uh, performers, certainly. So that act fell apart. And from that point on, Mo went his way and Ted Healy went his way. And they merged again later, as you know, we'll get to, I'm sure. Is it accurate to say that he acted as sort of a, a ringmaster with a bunch of crazy characters doing silly stuff around him? That's a, that's a really apt description. I've heard that uh, ringmaster. He was an MC, but he, and he controlled everything. But he had a great wit, and the audience just loved him. They just loved him because he put himself at peril oftentimes because of his, uh, as we called stooges later on, they would upend him. And, uh, you know, remember in later years, the three stooges when Curly or Larry would upend Mo, and, and, you know, that's a bigger laugh than him belting out to the other. So all of that, Chris, all of that was formulated early on stage with Ted Healy and his shows. So he created an act with his wife, 
They became very successful. And then it was Moe and Shemp Howard uh, yes. who became the first Stooges, the two Stooges. We see that in the newspapers in, their, in 1922. Uh, uh, oftentimes, the, the uh, reviews would not mention his other performers by name necessarily. But they would re refer to them as grotesque characters, perhaps. But in 1922, Ted took out an ad in Variety, the show business newspaper, praising Moe and Shemp for his act. A one-page thank you. And so that's uh, that kind of a revelation when I was uh, going back there, because we always heard Moe's timeline, and his memory was very faulty. I think um, most of us have come to realize. And uh, eventually, uh, uh, Ted was offered, he and his wife were offered uh, Earl Carroll Varieties, which was a, a Broadway show. And uh, Earl Carroll was the producer on that and the boss. So he wanted the big name of Ted Healy and, of course, his wife. But uh, the Stooges were not included. That was uh, Earl Carroll's call. So they went their own way. Now, in 1926, uh, by then, Ted was a, a really big show. <laughs> and and he was in Los Angeles, and a lot of the Hollywood folk went to see him, put on his act. And of all people, Stan Laurel, Hal Roach, practically everyone in Hollywood saw this act. And Hal Roach offered Ted Healy a contract to make short comedies with him. And so Ted uh, said, okay, for one, let's see how it goes. And I have a uh, letter reproduced in, in my book about Ted Healy, where uh, he had that offer and what the terms were. So Ted came and, and they, they made a movie called uh, Wise Guys Love Prunettes, and it was directed by Stan Laurel. Now, afterwards, uh, you know, they released it. And you can still see it on YouTube. Ted was kind of a, a support comic for that. You know, they were trying him out. But Hal Roach offered Ted an opportunity for a film career at Hal Roach. And Ted, of course, declined. He was a bigger star. He was going to wait around for um, a little silent comedies. By then, <laughs> he, he went on about his business. But if you stop and think for a second, wait a minute. That that could have been that could have changed a comedy for years, and we would have never have had Laurel and Hardy because Stan would have stayed as a director for a Ted Healy series, and if Ted stayed at Hal Roach, he never would have incorporated the act, including uh, what we know now as the Three Stooges. So that that is really something to contemplate. Right. So the Stooges at one point were called the Racketeers, correct? Right. Uh, that came about after, I have to preface that, uh, Ted put on a big review uh, called A Night in, in Spain, 1928. And uh, again, it was a big musical review. And this, it was so huge. You know, he, they were on Broadway, but then they hit the road after their run. And it, he had animals in it, horses, the bear, all the dancers, singers. And they went by train, all the big cities in America for that year. And uh, uh, Shemp was part of that. And in later 1928, Shemp was looking 
for a, a different direction in his in his career. And uh, they met Larry in Chicago. And uh, I don't know if that story is well known or not, but uh, there was a nightclub there that Larry was emceeing. And they invited Ted Healy and his cast from a night in Spain for an evening at a nightclub. And Al Jolson, of all people, was he was a big, big star, as you know. And he became part of that show for, uh, for about three weeks. And so that was a big deal to meet Larry with Al Jolson and Ted Healy. And, and as you know, offered Larry a, a job. We came on board about August of 28, not 1925, as Mo recalled, 1928. And it wasn't until 1929, the following year, where Ted and Mo collaborated on a new show, uh, A Night in Venice. And that's where the Racketeers came into play. It was a, a little skit. And that incorporated uh, Mo, Larry, and Shemp, and called, as you said, the, the Racketeers. And they intermixed with Ted Healy, back and forth, back and forth. And that was the germ of what became uh, what later known as the Three Stooges. But there's nothing like what we can imagine. No one is, is around to ask how that act went, but uh, there's a lot of good photos of it, so we can only imagine. What would be an example of a bit that Moen Shemp Howard and Larry Fine might perform on stage, one that especially brought down the house? Well, is the, the interaction, and they were, as we know, smaller than Ted Healy, and he could be the interlocutor among this group with, with those three smaller uh, comic henchmen. So there's physical comedy where he was, um, you know, it goes all the way back to Punch and Judy. You know, he would get the wrong answer, or he'd get crowned over his head and use a bass drum for the sound effect or a cymbal crash. And uh, I don't know how innovative that was at the time because we had uh, other vaudeville people doing something similar to that. So it, it was a slow evolution, a very slow one. So, so the film Soup to Nuts came out in 1930 and it starred Healy, Shemp, Moe, and Larry. If you watch it, uh, some people watch it, uh, and they don't have a capacity to um, put themselves in that year. They only think of it from their perspective, watching the Three Stooges at their height, and uh, not in 1930. Uh, you see it a little bit in Soup the Nuts, where Ted is a singer. And you see that in, in later, in those MGM shorts, where the Stooges uh, were in with Ted, where Ted was a singer. And part of the bit was uh, the whole audience knew Ted was going to do one of, his, one of his songs, and the students would interrupt him, and then it, they'd get into uh, a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, till the payoff. And that's, that's how that came about. But uh, it should be emphasized that the audiences back then anticipated Ted singing, and then everything else came about was... Uh, was fresh and new. So at some point, right, the other Howard brother, Curly, replaces Shemp after Shemp leaves to pursue a solo career in comedy. Yes, that was um, 1932. 
So that was a couple of years after that movie. And, um, and by then, big acts weren't drawing people. Uh, the, those old variety shows where by train you have uh, six carloads that you have to haul around. And by the way, I, I need to interject this. Ted was highly paid during that run, but you have to take in consideration that he had to pay for all the, all the salaries, all the production, uh, the animals upkeep, but the, and the actors putting them up and feeding them. So we don't know the bottom line, but uh, I thought I'd make that clear that it wasn't just Ted Healy not paying his stooges well, because that's what I've always heard years later. But I have a contract of Ted's in 1932 that I put in the book where his, he employed uh, Mo Larry and Curly by that time, $100 a week. And taking consideration, this was uh, the Depression, and they got 52 weeks of secured money, and they traveled with Ted. And so that was really the es- establishing their, uh, their act on stage. And you're right, uh, uh, Shemp, there was a, a dispute over pay. His Shemp thought of himself as the number one stooge to Healy, at least chronologically. And uh, so he, he was trying to hold out for more money. And uh, Ted saw that by saying, well, that's between you and Mo and Larry. If they give you more of their salary, you can have it. But it wasn't going to pony up. So that became a bitter point, And that's what some people point to is why Shemp split the act. But I have a feeling that Ted had an ace up his sleeve because Curly was in the wings. He was like in the bullpen, you can imagine. And he studied everything that was going on stage. And he would incorporate him, maybe uh, from the audience up to the stage, and uh, indoctrinate him that way. So it was a smooth transition when that happened. And it did in Cleveland in 1932. We will be back after these brief messages. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And we have returned. It's interesting. You said that Shemp considered himself the star early on, but I'm sure many of us, me certainly, uh, before I picked up your book, I, I thought that Curly was the original and Shemp replaced him, which, which did in fact happen, but much later on. Uh, only because he became the third stooge later after uh, Curly got ill in 1946 and later died. That's how people of that generation afterwards came to view Shemp as a, as a replacement to Curly, and no one could really do that. But Shemp was the original stooge. So the word stooge, where did that come from? That's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. Stooge was in the vocabulary and show business people for quite some time, many years, maybe a century. And uh, Ted Healy gets credit with identifying his people as stooges on stage. And uh, as you know, later on, he, he called them Ted Healy and his stooges. So stooges was a new word for the populace. And the, the media took off on that. The, the newspapers always quoted stooges. So that was after the, he tried the racketeers. And he tried a couple of other names. Nothing really gelled until that 1932 period where it was just Ted and um, Curly, Moe, and Larry. Because, like I say, it was the Depression by then. And he, Ted consolidated his act just with them. So that's where that gear with MGM came about. They, they hired Ted as the star. And believe me, he was a big name in America, and uh, he was supported by his stooges. So again, that's 1932, and uh, 1933, he was in those uh, MGM shorts, supported by the stooges, and then everything broke loose in 1934. February, they, uh, MGM offered Ted a contract for their uh, all their stars, and that kind of left uh, Moe, Larry, and Curly hanging a little bit. Now, that's, I will say up front, that contradicts Moe's memory. And who am I to contradict Moe? I, I, you know, the way Moe wrote it out. But uh, the way I see it, uh, with the contract, Ted Healy had them sign February 32 to February 33. And MGM didn't offer them a movie contract, and Ted wasn't able to do the same under his personal contract like he did the year before. So it was hanging in the balance, and, and Moe took it upon himself to seek out Columbia, and as you know, the rest is history. 
So once Mo, Larry, and Curly split with Ted Healy, he gets himself a brand new group of Stooges, right? Yeah, uh, not at first, but eventually they weren't uh, supporting him in, in the MGM movies. So that's kind of a misnomer. They, they appeared briefly, at least in photographs, in the movie San Francisco. Fans later called them replacement Stooges. I don't know if that's the correct terminology or not. But, uh, you know, he did radio shows where he was a guest, and he, and he brought in um, those other fellas, and uh, he kept it up. He always had some vitality to, uh, to bring to any show. But it was mostly by then uh, just an MGM studio actor. He was a, an, considered an A player for MGM. He had star quality, had, had name recognition, and he supported all the big um, actors at the studio. And uh, some of them were very dramatic. And Ted Healy cries in a couple of them. Uh, so he, he had a, a, a wider range of talent, at least in the, for the movie's sake, actor, as an actor, than he showed on stage with his Stooges. So that was, that was a real step up for uh, talent that Ted showed. He was in some 40 movies between 1933 and when he died in 1937. 40! Okay, so just to get the timeline straight on the Stooges, I'm going to pull right from your book's timeline. You call it the Ted Healy, Shemp, Moe, Larry, and Curly timeline. Because it can be a little confusing when each Stooge enters and exits the picture. So, in 1909, July 4th, Moe meets Ted at the beach near Coney Island, and they harmonize. 1913, Ted and Moe are part of a high-diving act. In 1923, Moe and Shemp are hired by Ted. 1924, Moe and Shemp are acknowledged in that paid ad you mentioned. 1925, Shemp gets married, leaves the act. Moe also gets married and leaves the act a few months later. And then Ted and Betty star in the Broadway review Earl Carroll Vanities. Skip to 1927, uh, A Night in Spain starts. Shemp returns to Ted Healy. And then in 1928, Shemp and L. Jolson and Ted, as you said, watch Larry Fine perform at the Rainbow Club in Chicago, and Larry gets a job officially. And then Ted and Shemp soon after groom Larry to replace Shemp. And then in June, Shemp goes off and stars in his own vaudeville act. And then in October, Shemp rejoins uh, for A Night in Spain. And then in December... Uh, during Christmas, Ted sends a chauffeur to pick up Mo and his family to take them to Ted and Betty's house for a vacation. And then Ted and Mo start collaborating on the show A Night in Venice. And then in 1929, Ted, Mo, Shemp, and Larry share the stage for the first time in what would be called Ted Healy and his review. And then in May of 29, A Night in Venice opens on Broadway. And Shemp, Moe, and Larry are supporting comics for Ted Healy. And then 1930, A Night in Venice finally wraps up. In March, Ted Healy and his racketeers, Shemp, Moe, and Larry debut in New York City. And then in May of 1930, the boys arrive in Hollywood to make the feature film Soup to Nuts. 
Uh, but in August of that year, Shemp, Moe, and Larry split from Healy. And uh, in September, Healy hires a new set of, of players. And then in 1931, Healy starts starring in movies with Fanny Bryce, etc. And then on August 7th, Shemp, Moe, and Larry rejoin Ted. They're still being referred to as the Racketeers. But by August 19th, Shemp walks out over a pay dispute. Despite being under contract, Moe and Larry remain. You talked about that. And then on August 28th, Ted Healy and Howard Fine and Howard. That Howard is no longer Shemp Howard. It's now Curly Howard, the third brother. He is officially introduced into the act. And that group continues through 1933. But in February of 1934, MGM, as you mentioned, signed Healy uh, to their stable of stars as a contract player. And then on February 24th of 34, Moe, Larry, and Curly's contract with Ted expires, and they separate and join Columbia. And then it would be three years later when Ted dies. We haven't gotten to that yet. And it's, it's when he's working in Hollywood uh, alone, his marriage to Betty becomes strained, right? And they eventually divorce. Yes, uh, a very complicated divorce because they, they were both living separately, and uh, and Ted was feeling his oats. He dipped into just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> so so was it a, a contentious uh, breakup? I would say so. Yes, uh, Betty Healy. She had a very healthy ego herself, and she kept tabs on Healy. And uh, later, when he died, I'm sure we'll get to that. But uh, Betty was the person yelling about he was murdered and. He left her a will and this and that. So she was a firecracker. And I, I should add, <laughs> as an aside, that Stan Laurel was so incredibly amused by Ted Healy. Once he met him in 2526, you know, they continued a correspondence with Betty Healy and uh, all through his life. And Stan Laurel hired Betty Healy as his wife. And uh, Laurel and Hardy feature our relations. So that gives you kind of a background to her. But Ted divorced her and um, married another younger gal who happened to be named Betty as well. But that was uh, 1936. So he divorces Betty Brown. His second marriage is to Betty Hickman in 1936 which happens the year before he dies. So where is Healy in his professional career at this point? Is, is he still a big box office draw? Oh, yeah. Ted, Ted was a household name. Everyone in America knew who he was. And um, he, was at the, he kept getting more popular and more popular. And, uh, and the other studios were, were want to borrow him for their movies. So he was... He was very active, and he was making about sixty thousand a year, which is big a big star wage. You know, you compare that with Mo Lear and Curly and, and with their Columbia years, they they were making twenty thousand each. So that gives you a comparison. That doesn't mean he's better or or worse. It just means in the star system in the nineteen thirties, Ted Healy was way up there. Right. So let's go to December of 1937. His second wife has just given birth to his son. Yes. And he is on top 
of the world. He's on top of the world. Now, I know what we're getting into, but I, let me preface this, that Ted had always been a drinker. And I say that because you know, it affected his life. And I, I'm not a doctor, but he had all the signs of being bipolar to me. And uh, back then, there wasn't medication for that. You just uh, winged it. And alcohol was his crutch. And uh, with a lot of people, with a lot of people, especially back then, that was the medicine. The other thing Ted had to cope with, he had a gambling addiction. And he was always playing the, the horse races. And, um, you know, it all piled up to where he couldn't pay his bills. Even though we made 60000 a year, he, he was in trouble with the IRS going back to the late 20s. So he was always uh, below water. He was very, he was, he was a genius in what he did as an artist. But in order to keep that up, you know, he, uh, he, w- he had good days and he had bad days. Good days, bad days. Higher than high, lower than low. And uh, alcohol would, would help him alleviate some of those symptoms that he was, uh, uh, it was like a demon. But alcohol eventually ruined his health. So let's go to the night of December 21st, 1937, uh, 41 years old, on cloud nine, as his son had just been born. Uh, that was something he wanted his whole life. The best day of his entire life was the day his son was born. Yes. And his son had been delivered on December 17th. So five days later, he's still celebrating in a very extreme way. Very extreme. God knows what he was doing at home, but uh, his manager was concerned about him. And uh, he had a bodyguard trying to prevent Ted from leaving. That's what they were afraid of. And Ted figured out a way to uh, get a taxi and take him down to Hollywood, where uh, this is where the story gets a little screwy. Ted went to a, a, a few places down there and uh, apparently tanked up to where he was extremely intoxicated. Can you walk us through the night? What do we know about where he went, what he did? Well, we didn't know for a long time. That's one of the reasons I picked it up in the writing a book about this, because it wasn't clear to me either. And uh, Mo was, and the boys were on the East Coast doing a personal tour, but he, um, he was the only person that really wrote anything about it, saying the three college boys... Um, uh, beat him up outside, and he and he died as a result. But uh, that didn't really tell the whole story, did it? So I went through the newspaper archives of the day, and to my astonishment, every that I I put in Ted Healy for that date, and virtually every newspaper in America had Ted Healy dies, Ted Healy dead. Uh, that's how monumental this incident was so when that happened every reporter went to downtown hollywood and went to the trocadero where he was last seen 
and tried to find out what happened. And one of those, um, and there were, uh, anyone would say anything and it'd be written down, uh, but we don't know what's fact or fiction because we had a lot of freelancers. So who's to say which bar he went to, which bar he ended up at? Uh, we do know that, uh, and, and several were mentioned in the journalist's account, past tense. But the Trocadero is the one that seemingly stands out because he met a young man named Cubby Broccoli there. I'll let you ask me, ask me a question. So the Trocadero, a very upscale nightclub on the Sunset Strip. A lot of Hollywood stars would frequent the Trocadero. Very extravagant, uh, and so much so, one of the, the media wrote it up as, and they charged a dollar for scotch and water. So that was really something, apparently, in 1936, 37. Was the club, do you think, connected to Los Angeles mobsters? That's a great question, because it's always been suspect in my mind that he very well may have been in hawk to mobsters because he played the ponies. And as you know, that's uh, cash on the line. Uh, you have to pay up. That's always been one of the theories. And, and in fact, in later years, we, we have a, an author friend of mine, Steve Cox, that developed a friendship with Milton Berle, old-time vaudevillain, and was in Hollywood at that time and asked him specifically, how did Ted Healy die? And of course, Milton didn't articulate it by words, but he pantomimed, putting his left finger over his nose at crooked, and uh, his finger pushing his right ear flap down, indicating a mob hit. Now, that may be true. I doubt it. It may, but I will tell you that uh, that was just before Christmas, and that hit uh, Ted Healy. That's uh, that is killing your golden goose. I don't know if, if that is something that a mafia would want to do because he was a big customer of theirs. So do you rub him out because he's behind? I don't know. Maybe they might injure him or something or threaten, but to uh, kill him. I think is beyond my uh, comprehension. But having said that, I think that all of Hollywood may have believed it. So uh, I think I mentioned in the book that uh, in pure conjecture, but I bet all those Hollywood folks that were playing the ponies paid up their their bills right, <laughs> right after that. So I think it affected everyone that way. Right. A mob hit often entails a bullet to the head in, in a dark alley somewhere, but this was different. He was beaten up with with people around him. Yeah. Can, can you talk about this encounter he had with Albert Cubby Broccoli and maybe tell us a bit about who Broccoli was? Yes. Uh, um, Cubby Broccoli was a young entrepreneur in Hollywood, and he was uh, producing movies as an independent and filming them. And as we all know, he later went on to produce the James Bond movies. So, you know, he's, we're talking a, a huge uh, 
development in his life. But back in 1937, he was 22. And one of the journalists, after the fact, um, looked up Cubby Brock uh, and uh, got a quote from him that, yeah, Ted came in, a drunk, and um, of course he knew who Ted Healy was. But Ted didn't know who this young man was. He said, "Get who is this guy? What, what does he want? He just wanted to shake Ted's hand as a new father. Everyone knew it. And um, Ted was um, pretty arrogant, apparently. And he, according to Cubby, he, uh, Ted took a sock at him a couple of times. And, uh, and Cubby tried to push him away. Now, there's, it's been also said that Cubby took a sock at him back. And Ted stumbled out of the Trocadero and got a taxi. And things get a little complicated because, again, no one is writing the script from A to B to C to D. Uh, it um, just journalistic accounts. So it's kind of convoluted. But uh, the, the point is that Ted got home by taxi and his friends uh, helped them into it. But... Cubby Broccoli is an interesting person, not just because we know who he became, but, um, you know, he was in a small group of uh, of people that might have been interconnected with the mob. Can't confirm it. But it certainly didn't look like a mob hit because Ted Healy died. Uh, You know, I'm sure we're getting to this. So maybe you should ask me the direct question. I'll expand. Uh, One of the people who helped him home was a professional wrestler, right? Uh, A man named. Um, Man Mountain Dean. (laughs) Yeah, Man Mountain Dean. So, of course, they all took care of Ted. And I think all his friends at one point took care of Ted if he was incapacitated with alcohol. So, yes, Man Mountain Dean was mentioned in journalistic accounts. And Dean claimed that Healy was pretty much incoherent. Couldn't remember what had happened to him. Not when he got home. He knew he got slugged, but he didn't know who slugged him. He was just out of it. So that part's a mystery. But uh, it seems that it was Cubby Broccoli because no one else is associated with that story. And the interesting thing about that aspect, and I can skip to the skip to the highlight of this, you know, Ted, when he died, there's some mysterious circumstances, but the coroner did an autopsy. And to make a long story short, we're going to go backtrack a little bit on this, but he died of natural causes, nephritis. His kidneys were inflamed. It was a, a, acute and chronic. He's 41 and loaded with alcohol. You know, it all came to pass. And his head wound was superficial. And I put a, a picture of it in the book, Ted, on, on the slab. You know, it's, uh, and I debated about that, but there was uh, a lot of misconception about uh, Healy's got a beating and, uh, you know, by numerous people. And uh, so I showed the wound and uh, I'll, I'll put it this way, as a law enforcement officer, if that autopsy resulted in, in identifying uh, uh, his cranium was was uh, damaged yeah we would have had a, a homicide on our hands but the medical examiner deemed it 
superficial. So that's all we have on the autopsy report. And I will tell you that this was treated very seriously. Uh, they had a uh, couple of uh, lieutenants present for the autopsy, and uh, they were ready to roll. They were ready to roll as an investigation, but it all dropped once the, the coroner identified it as uh, natural causes. So there was no report. No report, so we only have to rely on journalistic accounts uh, after the fact, which, as you know, aren't really credible. So so tell us about Wallace Beery, for, for people who haven't heard that name before, his relationship with, with Ted Healy, and if you could address the rumors that Wallace Beery had gotten into a confrontation with Healy at the Trocadero. I'm quite amused by the, this is a recent theory, by the way. It was born in the 1980s, which strikes me as funny. Um, none of the newspaper accounts ever mentioned Wallace Beery in any of those stories that were regarded with Ted. Uh, Ted uh, and and uh, Wallace Beery shared a couple movie experiences. Ted, Wallace Beery was a big MGM star. He was huge in silence and became a name MGM. I could list a bunch of movies, but they, Ted and Wallace were in a movie called the old soak. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it was, uh, geez, it was a movie about pre prohibition and, uh, the old, so it was just a Wallace beard, just an old, uh, guy liked a drink and talk real slow. And Ted was one of his buddies, really nothing. And uh, so the the story came about in the 80s where uh, the most loose thread you could think of, someone made up the fact that uh, Ted Healy stole a scene from Wallace Berry. So Wallace Berry had a grudge and sought him out, and they met at the uh, Trocadero one night when they were both intoxicated, and, and uh, Ted was the loser of that fight, which... Uh, uh, there's just nothing to confirm that. And matter of fact, I point this out in the book that uh, Wallace Berry at the time, he did not join the actors union SAG screen actors guild. And uh, he was put on probation by that union. Well, the Trocadero had union employees at the, the restaurant. And I will tell you, and if Wallace Berry was in there, they wouldn't have let him come in. They wouldn't have let him. This is the, they were, you know, if you know anything about unions, they were very powerful and uh, they wouldn't have let him come inside. And if he did, and he struck Ted Healy, the waiters and busboys, everyone would have offered for a fin. They would have, they would have named him. And, and the, and the uh, legend continues where, oh, they wanted to cut, MGM wanted to cover up. Walsbury, so they sent them on excursion uh, overseas. Well, they did, but that was uh, that was six months later, way after all this blew over, and uh, it was uh, it was already uh, arranged. It was already scheduled. So it's funny that someone put that piece together. Oh, so they put it in the timeline where it sounded suspicious, but of course it wasn't. I did an interview a while back about the mysterious death of 
Thelma Todd. She died under what some believe were suspicious circumstances in her garage. Uh-huh. And she was married to Pat DeChico, who has a connection to this story. Uh, ridiculous. In fact, that, that that was the rumor that someone put. I'll I tell you who did this. It was E.J. Fleming in his book, The Fixers. And he took little threads of her thing and weaved it together. And uh, I knew I knew E.J. Fleming, and I called him on it, and he kind of laughed. He was hoping to make his book into a movie. Now, I could talk about it because he's deceased now. So in his memory, you know, I he was a good entertainer. That book is very entertaining. <laughs> but it's ludicrous in that uh, he tried to interconnect Pat murdering Thelma Todd and Thelma Todd, if you can believe it or not, he wove it that uh, she had romantic feelings toward Ted Healy. Ridiculous, of course. But uh, that, was, that was his story. And that Pat DeSico was, was mad at Ted Healy, so he killed him too. So if, if you like the Hollywood uh, Babylon, you probably like that book too. Ridiculous. Uh, DeChico, though, w- was a cousin of, of Cubby Broccoli, right? Who was connected to Bugsy Siegel. He was definitely a friend of Cubby Broccoli. And some people say that uh, DeSico was um, um, a member of the mob. Could be. Could be. Yeah, it could be. Could be. But I don't think that solves uh, this murder mystery, quote unquote, because he died in natural causes. So there you go. Back once more after this brief break. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. 
So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned again. So one of the, the possible reasons for his death, toxic levels of alcohol in his system. Yeah, but uh, that's, that's, uh, that, they would n- normally do toxicology, and I'm sure his body was overwhelmed by alcohol. But uh, I wasn't going to bring this up, but uh, in the book I mentioned, uh, it was almost like the Keystone Coroners, and that when Ted died, his doctor was present that, you know, they brought the family doctor, the same doctor that brought his new child into the world. So that was four days before. So the doctor came and tried to administer oxygen and whatever they, they could, which wasn't much back then. And uh, Ted Healy was going into convulsions and his lungs were filled. And uh, at some point, you know, they called for the more, the, the, the coroner, uh, to take control of the body, which is normal under a circumstance where the doctor couldn't identify immediately the cause of death. You said, I'm not just saying that death warrant. I, you know, he wasn't ob- under my observation for the last 30 days and he, and he wasn't dying then. So of course he's going to refer it back to uh, an autopsy results. So I can only piece together up to that point. But th- I, sh- I have seen this happen where the doctor probably wanted to go home and the county didn't send their uh, coroner investigators to pick up the body and t- send it to the morgue. So I'm sure the family at that point didn't want to wait. And so they called a funeral service and those employees picked up the body. Now, that's happened. Now, there are laws against it now, legislatively put it in, but uh, to prevent that from happening, but not in 1937. So, again, like I say, Keystone Coroners, the, the body gets sent to the mortuary, and the coroner, Nance, had to get that thing over here so we can do an autopsy. So he was embalmed before. The uh, the coroner could uh, even get to the body. 
he didn't have anything to do with toxicology. But having said that, uh, medical examiners are trained to identify uh, failings of uh, bodily functions. And specifically in this case, you would say the, the heart, the lungs, and the kidneys. They're discolored and disshaped. So that, uh, with his uh, training and experience, he was able to conclude that he died of uh, nephritis and alcoholism. Do you think that is what happened? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I will say, I will say this. And some will say, "Oh, uh, it was." I've heard this. Oh, it's a cover-up. MGM covered it up. Uh, I, and no, because if that was the that's the worst job of covering up anything I could ever imagine. If MGM was so inclined to cover up, I don't know why they would. Uh, they would have sent their own doctors to Ted Healy's bedside and told the doctor, okay, um, here's your money. Get lost. We'll take over and we'll sign the death certificate. And uh, that's how you would do it if you were uh, if, <laughs> back in the old days, I guess. I don't know how often that happened, but I doubt it because you have a physician, a Beverly Hills physician who plays by his law, his reputation. And I checked on him the rest of his life. He was a very upstanding doctor and lived a long life. So it's not like the mob had his arm and, and uh, threatened to kill him. Uh, you know, it's, it stands to reason that, you know, people have active imaginations, but I have faith in medical examiners because they, they have their job to do and they're unbiased. It doesn't matter who comes through. They're going to do their job because they're, they're going to be checked afterwards. And the telling point is this. After a person dies, and even nowadays, the, uh, the report is in the public domain. You can get, you can get the report of the coroner's uh, details. And in Ted Healy's case, I'm certain that it was uh, shared to the media. Not in a press conference, but they had access to the report. And the reason why I know that is because there was an autopsy photo of Ted on the slab. And how did they get that? I think they had access to it because the, the coroner let them view it. And someone probably sneaked it out, or uh, that's not uncommon at all, but they had access to it. Well, it became a horrible story. Ted Healy dies with a, a newborn son, four days old, and it's a couple days away from Christmas. Well, the, the public has had, his, uh, had enough of this tragic story, and they're coming to grips with it. Well, now Christmas is coming up, and they want something not so horrible. So, uh, you know, that's going to take over the theme. And the Ted Healy case just became a sad ending. Yeah, the cut on his head doesn't look that serious. No, it's, you know, the word is superficial. And any boxer will tell you if you get a cut over your eye, it's going to bleed. But taking consideration of Ted's uh, impairment of, with alcohol, it, it affected him. That punch affected him. It, it wasn't in, um, in the autopsy report 
I can't think of the medical term that is listed as, as one of his demises. So I have to take that in, in consideration of the um, medical examiner and his judgment. That slug over the eye wasn't much, and it certainly didn't um, cause his death. There are other factors. Uh, Maury Amsterdam, who we all know from the Dick Van Dyke show, he was Healy's friend, and he had his own theory on Healy's death. He believed Healy was murdered. Uh, yeah, uh, you'll have to help me out with that. I think he was also uh, part of the Hollywood crowd, and probably, you know, I'm I'm trying to go on memory here. Um, uh, he he thought it was Patichico. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and my friend Steve Cox, who who interviewed more specifically about that, uh, Maury was in Steve Cox's uh, experience was never one to exaggerate. So, but uh, Maury wasn't there either. So how do we? You know, everyone got the chills how Ted Healy was died, and like I say, it, he may have been behind on uh, on his uh, bookie pen. And it's all very juicy, but I don't think we can confirm the mob. It's a mob hit. It's not as, uh, it's amazing this story has lasted as long as it has, but Maury believed it, apparently. And so did Milton Berle. And maybe they had friends of friends who told them that. And maybe all the bars in Hollywood came to that conclusion as well. And the mobs were probably sitting back, smiling, collecting their overdue funds from uh, the, the people that uh, played the ponies. But, but it's far more interesting to, to think that he was murdered, right? It sure is. Uh, that's why people have never given up on uh, that conspiracy theory. And it's easy to, uh, it's, it's easy to point to different aspects and, and pull a thread and identify how it happened. Three, you know, it went from three college students to the mob to uh, Lord knows what else. And you know, some people have hypothesized, you know, well, well, uh, that slug over his eye had to be a condition of death. Well, in this case, it wasn't. You know, if he if he had a if if he had a, a a broken cranium, like I said before, he that would have been uh, investigated as a murder, and it would have been identified as homicide, but it wasn't. The the poor son of, of Ted Healy, of five days old, when when his father dies. Now, can you imagine? Let's go back to when Ted Healy was first put in that taxi. He wanted to go home. No one took him to the hospital. Could you imagine if Ted Healy went to the same hospital that his son was being nursed by the new mom and he died there? That, oh, uh, there's no, re- it's, it's stands to reason that they took him home. So uh, going back to uh, the son, newborn babe, still in the hospital and, and mom had no idea when Ted Healy died, of what happened. No one told her. No one told her until after the funeral, they drugged her up, according to her. So 
what an unfortunate aspect. But Ted Healy's son grew up to be a six foot six tall man, educated, served uh, his nation in the military, married a, a lovely lady, and they had children and grandchildren. And he eventually died just a few years. As a matter of fact, uh, my later life, I was hoping that Ted Healy Jr. would write a book about his dad. I don't know why I would have thought he would know anything, but that's what I'd hoped. And I heard that Ted Healy was, Jr. was very, very ill. And I wrote a letter to the family offering to, um, I'd like in tribute to Ted Healy Sr., I'd like to get their okay, their authorization at least get them behind me. But I never, uh, it never got to them. They were in, they were grieving and uh, they never saw my letter. So I went about and uh, as you see the finished product, I, I wrote a book as a tribute to him. And then the family finally got word about this book. And uh, I'm sure they were uh, a little nervous but uh, you know what? There was a revelation to them. It was not just about his death. They were exhilarated because they were talking about their family background in, in show business through Ted Healy Sr. And what a big star he was and how generous he was. And so it kind of filled a vacuum. And I, I must say that uh, up till that time, they were a little standoffish to anything Three Stooges because they knew Ted Healy Sr. founded them. He established their individual film characters, so much so he wrote it in their contract identifying this. And they all signed that Ted Healy owned the property. So, uh, like I said, that's a revelation. And um, so it all came together where now the family has this book and, and they, uh, they have praised and thanked me and uh, it wasn't necessary, but I'm, it sure feels good. And even Stooge fans now, they, Hey, wait, this is a whole different layer about three Stooges history. And for people that have a thirst for knowledge, they now have something to go back to and see what the birth of the three Stooges was. I mean, the Three Stooges, as you know, they're a, an icon of show business now because of their short comedies with Columbia. I don't have to tell you that, but um, it's, it's a show business phenomena, how they started off, how they were Columbia, how they went through Champ, Curly, back again, and then uh, Columbia dies out, and then their features and Mo was prevalent through his whole life, um, beating the drum on, on their history as he remembered it. So I was thankful that I was able to put together uh, and augment some of that history through Ted Healy. Yeah. So, so you've written a number of books, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, for listeners who want to check out this one and the others you've written, where do you suggest we send them? Well, I should mention the names 
all the books. Uh, I, I wrote my first book was uh, Edgar Kennedy, Master of the Slow Burn. And uh, I wrote a book about Vernon Dent, who was born in my town, by the way, San Jose. And I wrote a book about Henry Brandon, uh, co-authored with uh, Rick Green. And they can, they can get it on Amazon or Bear Manor Media Books, who published it. Simple as that, put in Bill Cassera, and it'll come up, or uh, by Ted Healy, or by Edgar Kennedy, or, or the other actors I, I named. So it's pretty easy to access it, and it's, uh, you get the physical book, or you get it, um, you know, how they do it nowadays. You can just read it online. But um, I take a lot of pride in filling the gap of uh, old comedians that lived a long time ago that left left their mark and uh i'm attracted to that i uh, i'd like i'd like to make tribute books but not as a fan per se where we bypass all their bad points in life or or manners and again i was never a journalist but i was a law enforcement officer so I'm able to recognize facts and put it together in a in a way that's readable in a condensed form. That makes sense, yeah. And for people who would like to connect with you, you have a Facebook page, Bill Casera Books, and, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Well, well thanks for coming on to talk about uh, Ted Healy, the Three Stooges, and all of the controversy that surrounds his uh, untimely death. Well, I appreciate you asking me, Eric, uh, that the book's been out for a couple of years. And uh, I have heard back from a lot of folks, and, and you could read the reviews on Amazon. Nobody stooge Ted Healy. Look at the reviews. And uh, I've gotten uh, the maximum reviews from anyone who bothered to leave one. And um, I'd like to say because it's fresh information. And it's uh, it's said with passion, but I, I hate to say it, but some of the Three Stooges fans have come to regard over repeated uh, stories of how Ted was mean to them or didn't pay them well. And all that is uh, BS. It's all BS. And uh, it still comes up and it irritates me. But uh, people, Three Stooges fans are passionate more than anything else. And they will take a cause. And uh, if Ted Healy is the bad guy, they are emotional about it. Until people set them right with the book, and, and I'm proud to say that there are very knowledgeable Three Stooges fans, and they are, they're helping to offset that prejudice. So I'm pleased about that. Well, well thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, uh, have a great show. Uh, I really enjoyed being with you. Hey, everyone. Okay, so as I re-listened to this interview with Bill, I realized I hadn't followed up on something he had mentioned, the fact that Betty believed he had been murdered. And I wished I had asked him to elaborate on that. So I contacted him again, and he kindly agreed to do a follow-up call. So here it is. Let's listen now. So in our original interview, 
you had said that Ted's wife, Betty, believed that he was murdered. Who did she share her suspicions with? What did she say exactly? Well, you have to understand Betty a little bit. Uh, That's uh, Ted's first wife. And they went through a divorce, and she has alimony payments that was guaranteed. And once Ted died, that was it. No more income. So she's um, grieving, yes, but also the media ran to her for a quote. And, you know, there's a lot of emotions that go into something like that. And uh, she just... uh, went off. She said he was murdered. He had a hidden fortune. He had property. He had a will. And uh, none of those were true that impacted her at all. So she she was a, uh, a person to get quotes from, good, bad, or otherwise. It was, uh, she filled the papers in that void of time between his death and the official cause of death was announced. And even afterwards, she maintained that. You have to understand, she was a star at one time with Ted Healy, and that divorce really impacted her. So I, um, she loved uh, the press, and whenever she was quoted for something, and this goes back to her career, she made herself out to be a, a Cinderella type of persona, and um, uh, this all kind of fits her uh, ego and personality. And, you know, it's not unusual. Uh, you take uh, uh, this is a serious topic, death, and how it affects people. There are uh, a large percentage of people that are, when they die, the uh, relatives or someone that's not even there will scream bloody murder literally and figuratively. There was some question about Healy's money after his death, where it went. What was that controversy? Yeah, I, I do cover this somewhat in the book that uh, Betty thought that Ted had money and property and uh, buried money, but he didn't. And, uh, you know, all that was uh, gone through. And uh, the sad reality is when Ted died and, and his wife was in the hospital, his house was burglarized. Someone tore it apart, and his uh, second wife, nursing a baby in the hospital, came home and found out all their jewelry was gone and things of value were taken. So Ted Healy's death uh, impacted everyone, but can you imagine the grief of this uh, poor widow with a with a child, but there was uh, nothing to. In fact, uh, the first Betty tried to in, include uh, the uh, grieving widow to go on a treasure hunt, try and find out if there was something buried, or and got her all tangled up. And to make a long story short, th- there was nothing to it. Ted had money, but he he also spent it. He had uh, a large monthly salary. But uh, he also had bills. He had uh, uh, IRS attached his wages. So while he was alive, he was living well. When he died, everything crashed. One of the rumors about Healy that I've come across 
is, is that on the night of Healy's beating, he had called Shemp Howard and told him it was Cubby Broccoli and Pat DeChico who, who beat him up. And then he was, he was jumped in the parking lot by a third man, and that third man was likely Wallace Beery. I, I, I already know what you're going to say, but I, that, that's something we can quash, right? Those rumors aren't credible at all. No, no. Uh, there are rumors in that, and there are made-up scenarios. <laughs> and uh, I haven't even heard that one. Uh, unsubstantiated that uh, Ted Healy called Shemp. It's ridiculous. Uh, that I have never, since I haven't heard that, if, if it was in print, I would have seen that and addressed it, you know, at least where the sources came from. But these things are popping up on YouTube, of all places. Be skeptical and and consider the sources, which they don't have. I guess it makes an interesting story, but that's all it is. Someone made it up. Again, my guest has been Bill Casera. He is the author of Nobody's Stooge, Ted Healy, a biography of the stage and screen star who gave birth to the act that became the Three Stooges. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.